Well, hey there, broads. What is going on? Um, just wanted to hop on this episode quick before we dive into an incredible conversation with the amazing Alexis Nyers Haynes. I am confident that you broads will enjoy this episode, Becca, and I had such an incredible time speaking with her. Uh, but wanted to give you a little bit of an update about our schedule for the next couple weeks. Uh, so n- Thursday, Thursday, we have on Organic Olivia. We talk all about herbs, the naturopath ways. It's a really interesting conversation, and she is just a sunshine light of a human being. And then next week, both Tuesday and Thursday's episode will center all around birth, all things birth with Becca's pregnancy coming to a close here. We thought that we'd get into it. Um, And so Tuesday's episode, we talk a little bit about her past birth plan, um, the birth plan that she has coming up. And we talk about my birth story a little bit, which we haven't gotten into. And (laughs) it's a pretty organic episode where I bring it up and shock Becca with some details about my birth that we had never talked about. So we had a great time having that conversation. And then on Thursday's episode, we have a very special guest to discuss her births um, and also a doula. And Becca's going to get into more details about her upcoming birth plan. Um, We had a really great time recording these, so we hope you enjoy those next week. And then, officially starting June 8th, we have the first episode of this new Bachelor three-hour, I think, ten-week series where they condense an entire season down to three hours every Monday. So excited for this. Um, It's going to be long, but you know what? It's going to be worth it. Can't wait to get back into Batch Nation recapping with you broad, so... June 9th, our first recap of uh, one of those episodes will be coming out. And hopefully over those uh, 10 weeks, we will be having some fun Batch Nation royalty of old coming on and uh, doing some recapping with us and spilling some tea. Also, before we get into this episode with Alexis, wanted to give a trigger warning. We are going to be uh, discussing addiction, drug addiction, and we also touch um, a little bit on sexual abuse. Um, so I wanted to give all of you a trigger warning beforehand, but I will say this. Um, even if addiction and recovery is not something that has personally affected you or your family or friends, I highly recommend listening to this episode specifically um, towards the end, Alexis just dropped some incredible nuggets of wisdom that Becca and I were so grateful to hear. And it's really relevant, um, especially with what's going on in the world right now. So we're so grateful for her, so grateful that we were able to have her on the podcast. We hope all you broads enjoy it and uh, let's get into it. And welcome to another episode of Chatty Broads with Becca and Jess. Well, hey, broads, what's going on? Hello, here we are. (laughs) Here we are. We've actually been recording for a minute with our guest, and I'm just so excited for this episode. Number one, um, as most of you broads know, I am 31, and Beck and I do have a little bit of an age difference. We do. This specific guest, I watched her reality TV show every week when it was on. So I'm like, I've already been itching to like find out what was going on with her. And then I ended up finding out her about her podcast, Recovering from Reality, and seeing this incredible like arc that happened. And I dove deep. And I feel like it's just a perfect combination because we always talk reality TV on this podcast, but we also have had so many 
listeners want to talk about addiction and sobriety, and that's something we've never discussed on this podcast before. No, aside from Craig, but I don't know if that really counts. <laughs> I don't know if Craig counts. Because Craig just- being like... Craig being like, yeah, when I was tweaked out on meth and uh, trying to steal my neighbor's car, that's about as that's, that's about, about as, as far as we've gone. gone. <laughs> so today's guest uh, is, I believe, just going to be a per- wonderfully perfect fit. Um, broads, it is Alexis Haynes, aka Alexis Nyers, for some of you. <laughs> Welcome. Thanks for having me. I'm so so excited we finally made this happen i feel like this has been like eight months in the working this really has it's been the one that it's been like on the calendar forever i'm like oh my god we have to like everything the moving parts always but like, we have to talk to her this is important oh i'm excited to be here i'm excited too because i'm not gonna lie i lo- know nothing except the links that jess has sent me and oh. that got me pretty excited actually <laughs> I'm excited. <laughs> I mean, I obviously sent the famous, you know, infamous Nancy Joe Nancy clip. Jo. We had to we had to send it broads. If you don't know, uh, your show is called Pretty Wild. And how old were you when that was being? 18. 18. So, Wait, how did uh, this show even come about in the first place? Yeah. So um, there's a lot of misconceptions about this because... Um, on day two of filming, I was arrested so for the bling ring. And so everyone thought that I got a show because I had, was involved with the bling ring, but that actually wasn't the case. So what ended up transpiring was um, I was a 16-year-old who graduated from high school early, who um, entered into the entertainment industry as a dancer. I worked as a backup dancer. Um, and, you know, I I come from a very non-traditional family. We had life-size Buddhas in our house. I grew up living on and off and spending time at ashrams and different spiritual centers. Oh, wow. um, I had a mom that started smoking pot with us when we were really, really young. And um, I grew up in a household with like a lot of chaos. My dad was a very abusive alcoholic. My parents separated when I was three. I began being raped in my house when I was five. That lasted for several years. And then um, I was abused by babysitters and my dad's girlfriends. And just there was just so much chaos. And so by the time that I graduated high school and started working in the entertainment industry on a regular basis, um, I was already fully addicted to smoking like a lot of Oxy a day, snorting Xanax. Like my addiction was much more um, far progressed (laughs) past my peers, you know, drinking and partying. And so um, for me, staying up until 5am and snorting eight balls of cocaine and and then going home and snorting a Xanax and smoking some Oxy and doing it all over again was just like the normal. How did you get involved in that scene in the first place? Yeah, so um, because of my sexual abuse, I kept it a secret until actually after I got sober. And... um, you know, my home was not a safe space. Like love was conditional love in a lot of ways. It was, I'll love you if you behave a certain way. I'll love you if you perform a sexual act. I'll love you if you're a good little girl and keep the secret from me. I'll love you if 
You don't have outbursts. They'll love you if you basically hide yourself. And um, so I needed to check out really early on and I was diagnosed with a bunch of, you know, disorders, which I don't have today. I was diagnosed with like depression and ADD and all these things as a kid, but really it was just me like acting out in school because I needed help. And I was harboring all of these secrets. And, you know, people are always like, well, your mom like raised you in the, the thought, you know, the new age movement of like the secret essentially, and the power of positive thinking and all this stuff. But what she was doing was spiritually bypassing all of her own trauma. Mm -hmm. And for those who don't know what spiritual bypassing is, it's basically when you turn to any religion or any spiritual practice as a way to kind of negate the work that you actually really need to do in order to heal. Healing is this really brutal, dark night of the soul process. It's not, you know, meditating and ohm and like, Mm -hmm. let's, you know, do some yoga. It's a lot of deep inner child work. And my mom just was not there. So she was clinging on to sound baths and yoga and saging the house and all of these things in order to try to, you know, bypass all of the shit she needed to deal with. So I had surgery when I was, I think in um, eighth grade. And that was the first time I ever tried an opiate. And at that point, I had already been like stealing warm beers from my friends' garages. I had been smoking cigarettes and, you know, pot was always around in my house. So I would steal like pot from my parents and eventually they would end up smoking pot with us. And they're just, you know, I would do these things. But when I experienced the high of opiates, it was like, and like, normally I don't get emotional talking about this, but it was like the piece that I like so desperately needed in my life like all of the other stuff was great pot and whatever but for me the opiates did like it's like it shut it all down like it was it made like everything okay it was literally like living in a heaven when I was high and it didn't matter what happened around me I mean eventually I'd go on to get raped again I didn't even care um like I would be put in so many dangerous dangerous situations didn't care. Um, I was held at gunpoint trying to get heroin and like, didn't phase me. I got my dope. Like that's the kind of relationship that I had with the substance. It was my everything. And so after I had been introduced to those pain pills, I went into ninth grade. I had another surgery. So then, um, I had access again for a really long time because I had both of my feet reconstructed. So I was in a wheelchair and had to learn to walk again in physical therapy. And I remember I went to like a pretty gnarly school and I just went up to a senior one day and I was like, Hey, can you get me some like lean or like Vicodin or whatever you can get me? And they were like, yeah, sure. Um, and I found a steady supply of opiates from then on out pretty much. So, did so, your family, did your parents know about this at all? Or were you able to like fully, or your peers even, was this something that was openly talked about? Because I know you said that you yeah. were, you're, you were accelerated in how far yeah. along you were. I think, um, 
traumatized, severely traumatized kids. I say that the vast majority of adults walking around are traumatized children in adult bodies, um, working out of pure fight or flight mechanism on automatic pilot. But for the severely traumatized kids, we find each other and it happens right around that age when, um, you're starting to want to fly the nest a little bit. You get that, you know, your mom's not cool. (laughs) You don't care what your dad thinks anymore. And so I really, I found my community, um, my adopted sister Tess and I used the same way. And so we really were in this super toxic codependent relationship. Um, and we were using buddies. And so when I was 16 and 17 and working in the industry, um, we, we were really the life of the party. Like everybody wanted to party with us. My sister began dating Kid Rock. I mean, we had this very insane life. And one day we were working on a film as extras. And one of the producers was like, you girls are fucking hilarious. You should put together a sizzle reel and test for a reality show. And we were like, what's that? Like, what do you mean? Like, what's a sizzle yeah. reel? And what are the chances that you actually get a reality show? Like one in a million? Like, yeah, here, especially I mean, you're an extra. Every, cut to, cut to all life. of our listeners getting extra jobs and being like, what's <laughs> Yeah, that's crazy. Exactly. Yeah, so... um Hey, Brads, before we hear more about Alexis's story, we have to take a quick pause and you're going to hear towards the end of this episode, the three of us discuss our kids. Um, And speaking of kids, family planning is no easy task. More often than not, it's just sort of a let's just wait and see what happens, which we have tools to track and plan everything in our lives, finances, career moves, how many steps we take in a day. Why is fertility still a wait and see? That is exactly why Modern Fertility was created. It's the easiest and most affordable way to help you plan for your future and your future family. Traditional fertility testing done at a doctor can cost you over $1,000. But with Modern Fertility at Home Tests, you get access to all the same information for only $159. That's typically, again, $1,000 versus Modern Fertility, $159. Um, And after a quick finger prick, all you have to do do is just mail back that test with your prepaid label, and within 10 days, you'll have your personalized results. And Modern Fertility will give you insight into how many eggs you have, your hormone levels, and any reproductive red flags, which is huge broads. Um, The results go in depth and You also have the option to talk one-on-one with a fertility nurse if you want to discuss your next step. So you don't just get your results and are left blindly not knowing what to do next. You have the option of that one-on-one conversation with a fertility nurse. Uh, If you want kids today or maybe someday, Modern Fertility will give you all the information you need to make the decision that's best for you. And right now, Modern Fertility is offering our listeners $20 off the test when you go to modernfertility.com slash chatty. That means your test will cost $139 instead of the hundreds or thousands it could cost at a doctor's office. Get $20 off your fertility test when you go to modernfertility.com slash chatty. That's modernfertility.com dot com slash chatty. 
Uh, speaking of tests, if you broads remember a few weeks ago, I got back my allergen test that I took with Everlywell that confirmed that I can never have a cat because I'm wildly allergic, which is, of course, very sad because I do love cats. But thankfully, dogs are OK and I adore them as well because I have two uh, that I absolutely treasure. But I'm so happy that I found out through Everly Well by taking that home test rather than bringing home a furry friend and then discovering my allergies later. Uh, thanks to Everly Well, you don't have to make guesses when it comes to your body and health. Everly Well offers more than 35 different at-home lab tests from fertility to food sensitivity to thyroid to heart health to STD testing. Um, if there's anything you've ever wanted to know more about in regards to your health, Everly Well has a test to help you get that info. From start to finish, the process is so easy and clearly explained. Depending on your test, you'll be walked through exactly how to take it. And once you're done, you simply mail it back with that free label and your test will be reviewed by a physician. A physician. Uh, after that, you'll get your test results digitally with a breakdown that is super easy to understand. Um, that was the most important part for me. Lab tests can be very confusing, at least um, for my brain. Um, and Everlywell makes it clear, makes it easy to figure out what's going on in your body and exactly how to change it. Uh, to start better understanding your health like I did, check out Everlywell today. That's everlywell.com slash chatty, E-V-E-R-L-Y-W-E-L-L dot com slash chatty and enter code chatty for 20% off your test. Everlywell at home lab tests, your answers, your way broads. What ended up happening was we shot this sizzle reel. Well, I should go back and say that um, I'm a firm believer in affirmation and my mom and my sisters and I were saying on a regular basis, like we're working in the entertainment industry, earning X amount. I'll leave out the amount, but we ended up making that exact dollar amount. Um, what was your mom doing at the time? The career, uh, professionally? Oh my God. My mom has had a zillion jobs. She's a minister, <laughs> a massage therapist, a Reiki <laughs> practitioner. She makes jewelry. She, she, she's a Jackie of all trades. She does everything. She's never held a steady job in her life. She's totally not dependable. You cannot rely on her to like work something for more. Like at that time in my life, like I can't even tell you how many jobs she had. Um, and so, but she was kind of like hustling with you guys, like hustling in, in yeah. this pursuit of the, an, an entertainment career. Yeah, she had had a history modeling um, back okay. in the eighties with like Cindy Crawford, and she was a lingerie model, and she did Playboy herself. And so, we were saying this affirmation, you know, earning X amount of dollars, working in the entertainment industry with the benefit of healing the planet. And so, it's funny because I always tell people the beginning of that affirmation came true. And then a decade later, mm. here now, the end of that affirmation is coming to oh, fruition. Gosh, I chills. That's crazy. So um, right before we sold the show to E, I was introduced to Nick Prugo, who was the leader of the bling ring. And at the time, I didn't know that he was robbing houses. He had been robbing houses yeah, for a really long time. Talk about what this what this bling ring the is. The bling ring, yeah. So um, Rachel Lee, who actually um, is the assistant to my hairstylist now, weirdly enough. Um, <laughs> what? <laughs> after going to prison for many years, now cuts my hair. Um, Whoa, for this like okay. major, for a major celebrity, like huge hairstylist, like 
I pay like $400 for my haircuts from this guy. Okay. But that's another story. <laughs> so I didn't even know Rachel Lee. That's the thing. I didn't know any of the other members. All I knew was Nick Prugo. My sister knew Nick. They had been to like an adolescent kind of treatment center together. They had been in partying in the same kind of group um, for a little bit. Tess is older than I am. And um, Nick and Rachel had been robbing homes for several months before I met him. And so he was this really kind of like, I don't know, something, you know, when you meet someone and their energy is just like kind of intoxicating and it it wasn't in a healthy way. Mm -hmm. We like to use the same way. We like to party the same way. And so we ended up hanging out a couple of times and um, right after we signed our contract with E, I got a $50,000 bonus for signing that contract. And my addiction just like, whoa, like amplified. Like now I had the means like where before, I think there's a misconception that I was like some rich kid before I got the show, but that wasn't the truth. My dad had been homeless for many years in my youth. We had many Christmases where I would rewrap things that I already owned just to have presents under the tree where we couldn't afford toilet paper, where we were having food stamps. And so, um, when I got that money, it just kind of like, I, I went from panhandling and like, I don't know if this is too bad to say, but like sucking dick for drugs, <laughs> like all of a sudden, oh my God, I've got all this fucking money. And, um, my behavior became so bad that my mom kicked Tess out of the house. And I was like, well, if she fucking goes, then I'm fucking going too. And we went to Nick's house. Well, Tess left me to go to her boyfriend's house. And that night I was shit faced in a blackout. And I come to in the middle of a living room with a bag being tossed at me. And I was on like so much drugs. And so like, it's still very patchy to me today, what transpired. Um, and it turns out that was Orlando Bloom's house. So after that night, I stopped talking to Nick and like two months later, right before we start filming the show, um, I see this surveillance video of Nick and Rachel at, I think it was Lindsay Lohan's house. Cause they kept robbing, they would rob celebrities house houses multiple times, like over a period of like a few weeks. And they just were fearless, I guess, but they, so were they just partying with people and then stealing from them no, like while at their house or no. like literally breaking in? They would break in. So they would track <sighs> when they would be at like award shows or out of town. And then they would go to their houses and like break in. Oh, I was yeah. thinking like you're partying. Although and that did happen. Fucked up. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> that did happen a lot at Paris's house. I have friends that were in that circle like she used to have a house and across the street she had like a house or a guest house and people would like jack her shit all the time it took them like three or four times at Paris Hilton's house maybe even more than that before she even realized anything was missing because she has so much shit and so um any anyway I saw this surveillance video of Nick and Rachel and I was like holy fucking shit because I was like this is it like this is 
Like I'm not, I'm a piece of shit. I do lots of bad stuff, but like, this is like bad. Like I am not like, this is like next level shit. Like I'll do what it takes to get drugs, like check cars and basically prostitute myself. But like, I'm not fucking going to become a burglar mastermind with y'all like <laughs> at, li- so, at a like, list celebrity's house <laughs> yeah um and so i called the cops and so on the second day of filming so we sold this show as basically like an alternative hippie kind of um version of the kardashians and on the second day of filming the cops raided my house and I was arrested and the entire show took a full turn of me at 18 years old battling a heroin addiction while fighting a felony on national television. So did people know like who, like who knew about your addiction at that point? Not really that, like, anybody. Common knowledge or no? Oh, no, okay. I think my mom just thought we were partying and like I said, my mom had very little boundaries. Like she was smoking pot with us when we were preteens basically. (laughs) And so, um, and I think she, she was dealing with substance use issues. My dad was an alcoholic. Like there were, I think that until I'm the first person in my entire family to get sober, like ever. So, um, so yeah, it was, about halfway through filming, we went to Cabo and of course we ran out of drugs fast. And if anybody's listening, that's ever dealt with opiate or benzo addiction, you know, how brutally painful the detox is. It's like flu times a thousand. You just feel like you're dying. And, um, production found our drugs and flushed them and we started going into withdrawal and it just was bad. And I think that that's when everybody started to kind of realize that, this was far more serious than what they had known. And they tried to get us help. Like they tried to get us in with a Suboxone doctor and Suboxone is a drug that you can replace opiate with. So that way you don't have um, withdrawal symptoms. And yeah, there was just no hope for us at the time. Was, was this all like, because when I remember watching it, and again, I watched it a long time ago, like the, the, the addiction wasn't discussed. So was this then something like during filming that they were trying to get you help? Were you nervous that they were going to be, that they were going to start airing this part of your life? Like the, the drug? Well, piece? I don't know if you remember, but there was one part where production hid their dog's pills in my bathroom. And then my mom told my mom to go find them. And yes. then we got into a huge fight. Like whose fucking pills are these? Yes. Yes. I think yes. They yes. knew that it was going that way. I was able to somehow keep it together enough to get through the end of filming. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, it was definitely, I mean, nothing, and you know this, Becca, like nothing can prepare you for reality TV. You think you know what you're going and getting yourself into, and you have no fucking idea. And so I just was so young and had had so much trauma, and I just really made for like perfect reality TV material because I was such a fucking mess. And at the end of the day, you know, and I say this and people think I'm crazy, like 
my show and going to jail and then getting out and then going to jail again and then being sentenced to a year in treatment was the best thing that ever happened to me. And it's like that one night that forever changed my history. You know, I'm no longer a twice convicted felon now. My record's clear. But the point is that that one night saved my life because the way that I consumed substances was not like other people. I would definitely have been dead by now. There's no question. And it's been nine, a little over nine years that I've been sober now. And there's just no doubt in my mind that I would have been dead by the time I was in my early 20s. So what exactly happened? So so you started detoxing and then what what happened after then you got arrested or what's the what was the timeline here? Yeah. So um in June I decided not well, that's a whole other story. <laughs> there was a really dirty cop on my case that did a lot of really bad things and he has since been fired. Um but I ended up taking a plea deal partly because of him and partly because I was just a heroin addict and knew I just couldn't go through with trial. And so I took a plea deal and I went to jail. I spent a whole summer at the Linwood Correctional Facility in protective custody. So in a cell by myself, 23 out of 24 hours a day, you get one hour out to take a shower and the nastiest shower that you've ever experienced in your life, you can make a phone call um, and basically like walk around in a circle in this like very small, it's like a dome. And then there's like a layer, a row of cells and a row of cells. And I went in and I'd never detoxed before. And I kicked you were 18 at this point. I, it was just after four days after my 19th birthday. Okay. So, um, yeah, I went in and during that summer, it became after detoxing, it became really clear to me that, um, heroin was a problem. (laughs) Like you should probably not do drugs anymore. Um, but like I said, no one in my family had like gone to AA or like talk. No one had been like, Hey, sweetie, I think you should go to treatment. That wasn't a thing. So I always tell the people this, like the drugs are not the problem. I was the problem. Like my trauma, my unresolved pain was the problem. The drugs were the solution to the problem, but I didn't realize that back then. So I had every intention when I got out to follow through on my probation, to test clean, to only drink, to not use drugs at all. And Literally that night that I got out, I went to a friend's house where I got blackout drunk and ended up getting in a physical altercation with the girl that I had been sleeping with for many months. And um, it was just brutal. And I remember going home to my little studio apartment that I could not afford and sitting in the shower and bawling my eyes out for like, I don't know, the water had been cold for several hours. And I spent weeks not wanting to sleep because I was afraid if I woke up that um, I would end up back in jail. And 
I now know that I had CPTSD, which is chronic post-traumatic stress Mm. disorder. Mm. And so I started drinking again and it was only a matter of weeks before the needle was back in my arm. And I stopped showing up to probation because my days were spent, all the money from the show was gone. um, And my days were spent panhandling for drug money and considering becoming a stripper because my mom had me in pole dancing classes when I was 15 um, to get by. And so I, um, it was... It was the last night in November of 2010. I don't remember if there's 30 days in November. I think it's 30 days. December 1st was the day that I was rearrested. And I happened to just go to my mom's house. The officers didn't have my address. Um, And so I went to my mom's house that night and I was in my mom's bathroom. And at this point, I was just trying to smoke heroin. I was trying to stop shooting heroin because I just kept almost overdosing or overdosing. And I just knew that I was going to die. And so, yeah, I, um, looked in the mirror at myself after smoking. I had a big hit, um, and I had very little left to ration me to get through the morning. And, um, I looked at myself in the mirror after I let out that last hit and I just started bawling, crying, like, like a fucking infant for like an hour. Like, who are you? Like, you're not a bad person. Like, why are you in this position? Like, you don't have to suffer like this anymore. Um, and that night I went to bed in my sister's room and I woke up to the cops at my door again. And it was like the whole SWAT team. They came in, they arrested me. I blamed my heroin on my sister who was 16 because I was like so in my disease and just heroin was a thing that like was saving my life. I thought, and, um, and I was facing six years in prison because that was, I had a suspension. So what happens when you take a plea deal is you get a reduced sentence. And if you don't, if you fuck up on your probation, it's mandatory sentence in prison. And so for the maximum amount of time they could give you for your involvement with the original crime. So now I had not only that, but an additional charge of possession of heroin and a smoking device in a different county. And I was like, fuck, I just, I'm done. Like I surrender, just like take me to prison. Like I just can't like clearly am my own worst enemy. And, um, I'll say his name over and over and over and over and over again. Like the DA just wanted me to go to prison and judge Peter Espinoza. Love you. Um, saved my life. And he sentenced me to urine treatment. And in that urine treatment, wow. a urine treatment in urine th- treatment. that that's, of six that's it. Well, I had to do probation for, for four right, years. right, right, right. Yeah. So, and I ended up getting Holy off probation shit. early because when I was in treatment, um, I went to school to become a drug and alcohol counselor. <laughs> I would then meet my husband. We now own our own drug and alcohol treatment center, Allo House Recovery Centers, where we treat mental health and addiction. And, you know, I've dedicated my life to this. So like, it's been the greatest gift and we've been able to help thousands of people 
get on the path of healing. And it's just like, if you would have told me a decade ago that like the Nancy Joe bawling yeah. baby Alexis <laughs> would be who I am today, I would have been like, that's fucking impossible. There's no way. But here I am. Okay, broads, we have to pause quickly and I will tell you, I may have found the secret to parenting. I mean, maybe not the secret, but a secret for sure. Kiwi co-creates four kids. I have never seen something so perfectly entertaining and educational for kids of all ages. KiwiCo is a science and art subscription box made for kids, tested by kids, and loved by kids and parents. I'm raising my hand as I'm speaking to you right now. That's me. I appreciate it deeply. Um, They couldn't make things easier on you. Here's how it works. Once a month, your kiddo gets a kit delivered to your door filled with science and art projects that revolve around one specific subject. And the best part for all busy parents, all of the materials are included. That means no last minute trips to the store or tearing apart every junk drawer in the house to find glue or string. The crates have everything you need. Uh, My daughter, Ember, absolutely adores getting her crate when that thing comes in the mail. Oh, Lord, she freaks. Um, Our last delivery taught us all about the rainforest. She loved all the crafts. And what was so cool is even after we'd finished the crafts with KiwiCo, it opened up this great conversation about the rainforest, which it always does. It always opens up these awesome conversations that I have with my kiddo for weeks and weeks to come. Um, She had so much fun and I had fun putting it together with her. The instructions are so clear. So I let her take the lead and it's just a joy to watch her building her confidence as she accomplishes these projects. Uh, No matter if you have little ones at home or you want something to challenge your brain or you want to give a gift to someone who has a kid, they have crates for uh, ages zero to pretty much 100, okay? Everyone enjoys these. Uh, Plus, there's no commitment, so you can pause or cancel your subscription at any time. KiwiCo is redefining play with hands-on projects that build confidence, creativity, and critical thinking skills. There's something for every kid or kid at heart at KiwiCo. Get your first month free or on selected crates at kiwico.com slash chatty. That's K-I-W-I-C-O dot com slash chatty. Kiwico.com slash chatty for your first month free on selected crates. No, it's like I, I, that clip, you know, I feel like especially I'm, yeah, like I said, I'm 31. That clip is like seared into my brain. (laughs) Like that's just, that was like just such this iconic clip in our time and then I hadn't heard from you and then I happened to see um it was it was like an interview on YouTube because I had like been watching some like sobriety video on YouTube and I saw you and I'm like whoa wait a second (laughs) like it was I hadn't even been following you know no idea about the story that was going on and just seeing that change was just so unbelievably like shocking was this something that your family when you were sentenced to uh, a year in treatment was this like your family was kind of like okay were they involved were they not involved like what did that look like yeah so um unfortunately what happens a lot of times is when the black sheep of the family or the scapegoat or the one that everyone likes to point their finger at and go, well, you're the problem child. You're the problem in the family. It's not us. It's you. When that person gets better, everyone else falls apart because all of a sudden the light is being shown back on them. And it's like, well, what was your part in her addiction? What was your role in X, Y, and Z? And (laughs) 
for a lot of my family members, they weren't really ready to do that work. It wasn't, they, it got to the point where there was so much sabotaging happening in my treatment that I had to basically stop talking to my mom because it was that bad. And, um, I'm really grateful, you know, when I, um, was about two years sober right after we had a huge fight. Um, I was eight months pregnant with my daughter and I had recently come out, um, and told my family about my sexual abuse. Um, the rape that was happening around the age of five that lasted for a couple of years. It was at the hands of a family member who was 10 years older than I was. So he was 15 to 17 and I was five to seven ish. And, um, she was so angry about me getting sober and people starting to question her parenting, et cetera. I remember she even said to my husband once, I have a reputation to uphold. This is the mom who like went on public national television and would say, girls, it's time for your Adderall. Like it was, I mean, like (laughs) she has a reputation. She she has a fucking (laughs) reputation now. Um, No. And she started to tell all of my family members that I was lying about my abuse. And she started triangulating everyone against me. All of these people who I was trying to mend relationships with. She just started. I mean, it was the nastiest. I mean, still to this day, you know, I very, I don't have resentment towards her because we've done so much work. She's done so much work. I mean, my, it's profound the work that my mom has done. I'm so grateful that she's in recovery. But it still stung because it Really, I know the effect as someone who I have a million jobs. I work as a birth doula specifically for women who have had sexual abuse. And so as a birth doula, I know that the infant is very clearly impacted by the mother's energy. And she just, I remember sitting there screaming with like this primal, like I was just kind of starting to work through my trauma. And I just this primal like rage that was coming out of me. And my husband had to call her and my husband is very, he's a stoic, like nothing shakes him. And he had to call her and be like, listen, like you're not going to be in our life anymore. This is just like not working. And um, yeah, it was... <laughs> It was a long, it's been a long journey for all of us, for mm-hmm. sure. Um, Tess, my sister who I was using with, didn't end up getting sober until several years into my sobriety. Um, my little sister is still healing emotionally. At the time of the show, she was like 15 years old. So she was going through this like whirlwind, um, you know, so it's it's been a journey. I'm happy to say that we're all in a in a pretty damn good place, but it has not been easy. You know, I always say to people, like, if you think getting on the spiritual path is the easy path, like you're fucking sorely mistaken because it is not. <laughs> it is not the easier. It is the path that is so rewarding and worth it and ultimately leads ultimately leads to peace and freedom and all of the things, um, and the ability to, um, 
embrace and sit in discomfort and and the gift of healing but it is not the fucking easy path by any means so is, how did you get oh sorry go ahead B. how did you get on that path when you were in treatment and and why was that successful for you i mean i think for so many people it would have been like sweet one year in treatment instead of six years in prison and i'm gonna go back out and like yeah. You know, I'm still young and life goes on kind of like what what shifted? Because I imagine it was something within yourself that for whatever reason, there was a the, the desire. What happened? Yeah, I think that um, I knew I was going to die at that point. Like, I just really did know. I was definitely resistant to treatment in the beginning. It's funny. I was deemed least likely to succeed. And I'm one of three that I went to treatment with that are still sober. Um, it was this guy, rest in peace, Cadillac Ron, that's really his name, (laughs) who, um, was this like really dope East LA Hollywood rapper, underground rapper who worked at my treatment center. And one night we were in a big book study. I no longer attend AA, but I did for many years. And I was just fucking popping off at the mouth about how all y'all are alcoholics, but I'm not, I just use heroin because I'm physically dependent. I'm very smart and intelligent. So I would be able to like walk circles around people with <laughs> yeah. fucking excuses. You can wordsmith your way out of it. He looked at me dead in the eyes and he goes, do you think normal people would ever try to shoot up heroin in the first place? And for some reason that just like cracked my fucking ego. And I was like, Oh, (laughs) like you're right. Like normal people don't stick needles in their vein and like shoot up with like rinse dirty ass cottons and like suck dick for drugs. Like that's not normal behavior. Like it just, it was like a fucking smack in the face. Mm. It was a smack in the face moment. And, and there was many, the thing is when I was in treatment, I was not at all ready to deal with my trauma. That first year I went back to school to become a drug and alcohol counselor. And I relied heavily on community. I run a drug and alcohol non 12 step holistic treatment center now, where our motto is connection, not control. Because what really gets you by in those first 30, 60, 90, you know, 365 days is community is building up relationships with people where you can tell them your deepest, darkest secrets. And they're like, bitch, I'm going to one up you. You did that. I did this. And you're like, Oh, <laughs> like I'm not the biggest POS in the freaking There's world. no shame. Mm-hmm. It drops all of the shame around it. Right. And so I was able to really show up as my authentic self and as I started to gain more humility and there was cracks in the ego. All of a sudden I became this really raw and vulnerable person who was, you know, my husband, so my husband saw me from day one until we ended up getting married. Right. So he kind of saw this transformation. He had five years sober at the time that I was newly sober. Oh, wow. And so he would see me in meetings and I would come in with, you know, think like old school, old Hollywood, Audrey Hepburn with the scarf wrapped around my head (laughs) and the cat eye sunglasses. (laughs) And meanwhile, I'm like a a twice convicted junkie, like 19 year old embarrassment. 
And I would be like, Alexis, alcoholic. Like, oh my God, I got voted best celebrity mugshot. Like how embarrassing. (laughs) These were my shares at AA meetings where major celebrities are sitting in Malibu at the meeting with me. Oh my God. And these are my shares. And what happened was, um, I had a small, so that happened with Ron, but I was still like, no, but I've got this. Like I'm fucking cool. Don't worry. My, my roommate worked at Starbucks during the day and she brought home whippets and I did a fucking whippet cause I knew I wouldn't get drug tested for it. And all of a sudden my entire world imploded and I just realized, holy shit, you can't stop doing drugs for a fucking year when it means that you're going to go to prison, prison. We're not talking jail. Like Mm -hmm. jail was like bad, but we're talking six years in prison and you can't stop. And what happened was I crawled my way into the next meeting, like Mm -hmm. with so much humility, sunglasses off, bawling my eyes out. And I was like, I don't know who I am. I don't know how to do this. I don't know how you all do this. Why are you guys happy? Why do you get coffee after every meeting? Why do you guys like each other? I don't like any of you. I don't, I don't (laughs) understand. Like I just was so humble. And my husband came up to me after the meeting and he was like, it's going to be okay. And here's a really awesome chick's phone number in case you want to like reach out to like a cool chick in the program. And like maybe do some step work. That's what I did. So I, I worked with her for, um, I just, what made you reach out to her? Like you just, cause you just needed anything. Yeah. After that, like whip it experience, it just kind of came like, it was like, it was like a number of events that all of a sudden, like I was facing charges in another County now for possession of heroin. I actually, at one point during treatment, had to go surrender myself to go do jail time while I was in rehab, like serving the other sentence. Yeah. Oh my God. It was just like, are you kidding? Bitch? Like get it together. Like it is time, you know, like you need to do this. And so, yeah, it was just a number of things that it was like, Oh, can I get worse off emotionally right now? Let's try to find out. And then like I would finally just realize this self-sabotaging shit has to stop. And I called um, the woman and she set me up with one of her like sponsy sisters. And I called her Deborah and Deborah and I just really vibed. She was this really cool chick. She was a um, clothing stylist for commercials who lived in Topanga and she had long curly hair and dress like she was like my dream like how I would like to look like (laughs) when I'm her age and she was an ex-heroin addict and she was just and I just clung on to her for dear life and I I remember I would call her because when you're newly sober everything's a big freaking deal everything's Mm. a because you're not you've been using drugs to numb out you don't feel your emotions anymore and so when I would when something would happen that was even minuscule I would call her in like a panic attack and she would she would go you're gonna be fine sit down where you are breathe and call me back in five minutes and then she would hang up on me and I'd be like what the hell like you're supposed to be my sponsor you're supposed to like walk me through this stuff and (laughs) 
I would call her back in five minutes and she'd be like, are you alive? And I was like, yeah. And she was like, you need to learn how to be okay with discomfort. You need to learn how to sit in discomfort. You need to learn how to sit with your emotions, like your fear, your anger, your rage, your pain is not going to kill you. It's a gift. And it's a gift that just keeps giving sister and we're going to work through it. But like, you have to be willing to go to the most uncomfortable, most dark, deep places of your existence in order to heal. And, you know, still to this day, one of the first books that she had me read was The Power of Now. And then the second book is this book, which I just bought another copy because mine was so (laughs) ripped apart (laughs) that I couldn't even open the pages anymore. But it's Pema Chodron, The Places That Scare You. And it's all about how those places that we're so afraid to meet and to become friendly with and to understand are our greatest gifts. And I just really, there have been so many like ebbs and flows in my sobriety. I have dealt with such hard stuff. My first daughter's birth sent me into a spiral and a deep depression like never before. I wanted to have a home birth where no one even like looked at my vagina because I hadn't dealt with my sexual abuse yet. And I didn't realize that that's why I wanted a home birth. And then I pushed her butt out and ended up with an emergency C-section and had PTSD Mm -hmm. from that. And, you know, we had so many nursing struggles. And then when she was 18 months, I had a miscarriage. I became suicidally depressed. I tried to kill myself. My husband, I called him from work. He, he, I told him to 5150 me. Like I have been through so much. My second daughter's birth, I ended up having a VBAC. Eight days later, I had three blood clots in my lung and I almost died. I've lost so many friends (laughs) in recovery. I have had to just go on so many deep, profound, dark. I've gone through so many dark moments and... I finally feel like in this last two years, I'm like, oh, I'm on the other side. But, um, you know, to say that sobriety has been like this cakewalk and it's like so much better is just not honest. But I, what I want people to know is that if you're feeling like substances are hurting you and you're checking out of your reality, I mean, that's what recovering from reality is all about. It's about waking up to our reality. Um, so despite all of those hard things and I could list a million more (laughs) suicides in my family and just so much hardship, um, I've learned to be okay with the discomfort and what happens as we begin to do that and make friends with our shadow selves and with the work, um, that needs to be done is all of a sudden the hard stuff isn't so hard anymore. You know, and right now, if someone saw my life, like my real life, not like what's on Instagram, but like what was really happening in my world, you'd be like, how are you still sober and like peaceful and happy and like all of the things right now. And, you know, and this is me without meds. Like I'm not an antidepressants. Like life is really okay. And I think that it's just such a gift to have developed the practice that I have today to be able to do the work that I do. Um, 
And to have the tools that I have, because yeah, I mean, like I said, shit's imploding right now. And I'm just kind of like, it's cool. It's always been okay. It always will be okay. If I have to move, it's okay. If we don't accept it, get another paycheck for three weeks, it's okay. I got food in my pantry. My kids are okay. Like, you know, I, it's, it's about learning how to, yeah, just be okay with whatever the circumstance presents. Well, it's more like, it's a more, I like what you said earlier about the connection rather than control mm. and treatment. And what you're talking about right now is surrendering instead of trying to control too, yeah. which it, it sounds like for you has been the, the, the key to living a fuller, truly more satisfying life. I don't want to say like a sober life. Cause I don't think that that's like the end goal is just like to be sober. And there are plenty of people that are like, just, miserable and still you know dealing with so much shit even though they've been sober you know for however many years but but um and i i I really don't like to hang on so much the word sobriety because it's like i and i as a treatment provider who sees a spectrum of people uh, on their recovery journeys i i think in our community, we're really doing a disservice when, and it comes from us being a puritanical society that deems some people as better than others. And so when we talk about sobriety, we're often talking about abstinence, but we're not talking about emotional sobriety and there's no spectrum. And what we're seeing is right now in the recovery community, a number of people who are venturing off of the standard AA type of model and into alternative healings like plant medicine. And I absolutely still consider those people sober. Um, And, you know, for me, I've just kind of started to touch the surface about talking about this. But um, so I obviously had a lot of trauma I needed to heal. And I've done everything from EMDR to transcranial magnetic stimulation to neurofeedback to seven years of intensive cognitive behavioral therapy. I went to school to become a counselor. I'm a yogi who meditates every day. <laughs> I'm trained in... Um, Your mom would be proud. <laughs> my mom would be really, really fucking proud. Yeah. Um, but more recently, I started um, exploring microdosing psilocybin as a way to heal my neurotransmitters. And I absolutely consider myself still sober. I don't get high and um, it's you know, non-psychoactive and it's really had a profound effect on me. And so I think we just have to move away from like these words that we get Mm. so hung up in like the words of this. And it's, it's doing a disservice to the whole community because I'm seeing a broad spectrum. I'm seeing people who were young like me, who got sober at the same time I did, who are now able to have that glass of wine. And that's fucking great. Right. And we're seeing people who absolutely can't, right? Mm-hmm. And that's cool too. I don't think that the goal necessarily needs to be abstinence. It needs to be peace. So what's right, going to bring you- not solving problems necessarily. Yes. By just yeah. stopping yourself from doing this one thing. Yeah. I mean, you also see people with addiction issues and even though they may be like not drinking and like you're saying, abstaining from drugs, they may be like, I mean, I, I, I dated a 
former heroin addict and it, there was like a lot of other shit where I'm like, okay, you're abstaining, but th this is like really unhealthy. This is really unhealthy. This is like societally acceptable what you're like, you know, but it's like, you can't fuck three Tinder dates every single day <laughs> yeah. and like call yourself sober <laughs> in a way. Like, you know yeah. what I mean? Yeah. That's it. Well, and um, my argument is, and I always get fucking backlash for this, but I don't fucking care. <laughs> um, is that everybody's addicted to something, mm. whether it's working out sex. I mean, here's why. And I talk about the brain a lot. We, the vast majority of the population is living in their limbic brain, living in their reptilian brain, which has the amygdala up here, which is the fight or flight response. A mature adult is supposed to be living up here in the prefrontal cortex, which doesn't start developing until age 10 and doesn't finish developing until age 28. And so that's why, and you know this because you have kids, you have to repeat over and over and over and fucking over again <laughs> <laughs> for our kids to do the same shit um, because they don't have that prefrontal cortex, which is the parent in the room. It's the ability to think things through. And is there a consequence with this? And, oh, is this a good idea for my life? And so what we're seeing um, by and large, as a result of generational trauma and as a result of um, all of the things, systemic racism, chronic stress, um, the two-income trap, all of the things that are really at the root cause of our mental health and addiction crisis in America, um, you know, what we're seeing is that everybody is not able to access that any longer. And they've actually done brain scans of huge populations of people. And they just know that adults, they're not using their prefrontal cortex. They're always living in their amygdala. And so, um, you know, whether it's gambling, sex, um, porn, drugs, alcohol, toxic relationships, being an overachiever, our cell phones, whatever, we all have places in our life that are imbalanced. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, I think, you know, and that, that's why my podcast is not strictly about recovery at all. A lot of my guests happen to be in recovery, but we carry, uh, have conversations about a variety of topics. And, and the goal is really to learn how to become your own guru and how to heal yourself um, from whatever is causing a disruption in your life. All right, broads, just have to pause one more time. I cannot wait for you to hear the serious wisdom nuggets that Alexis is about to drop. But before we get into that, um, a lot of us are still spending our days at home. And if you're like me, you're always looking for new ways to keep your brain engaged, uh, ways that are enjoyable and right now, importantly, fun and if you haven't tried out Best Fiends, there's your answer. Best Fiends is an online game full of breathtaking visuals, fun puzzles, and a gripping story that keeps you interested no matter how much or how little you play. Also, the characters are cute, okay? Um, I love this game because it doesn't require any Wi-Fi or cell service to play. It's perfect for weird times when you need to entertain yourself unexpectedly, which I feel like we find ourselves in recently. Uh, Best Fiends has saved me from boredom more than once in line at the DMV, for example, now at grocery stores, wherever. And if you find yourself playing often um, as a quick mental break throughout the day or for a few minutes as you wind down before bed, 
You'll never get bored because Best Fiends updates the game monthly with new levels and events. Um, Until I downloaded Best Fiends, I wasn't really into digital games at all, but Best Fiends got me hooked. Like I said, the characters are the cute little bugs and slugs, and it's impossible not to get drawn in. So engage your brain with fun puzzles and collect tons of cute characters. Trust me, with over 100 million downloads, this five-star rated mobile puzzle game is a must-play. Download Best Fiends free on the Apple App Store or Google Play. That's friends without the R. Best Fiends. Well, Broads, this world does feel abnormal right now, and there's just no way around that. And that can be hard to deal with sometimes. Um, One way that I personally have found helps ground me is to insert normalcy into my life wherever I can, whether it be making my bed every morning or just getting dressed when I feel out of it. Uh, Doing those small things can help a ton. And for me personally, self-care routines have been really helping me. Um, And my personal favorite self-care routine that helps me take care of my teeth show some self-care to my teeth, uh, is High Smiles Teeth Whitening Kit. Using their kits, it's so easy. It just takes 10 minutes a day for six days. It's almost like a nice reset if you're having an off day, which let's be honest, might be more often than not right now. And it's the little things that could really help bring back some routine, normality into our days. Plus, High Smile is already used and loved by some gorgeous smiles from Kim Kardashian, Kylie Jenner, to Millie Bobby Brown and more. It's a system you know you can trust. And if you have sensitive teeth and have had to previously swear off whitening systems in the past, this kit is for you. High Smile uses ingredients that won't irritate sensitive teeth at all. And broads, you can trust. Becca and I both have extremely sensitive teeth and high smile we felt nothing we just saw the beautiful results no irritation it was fantastic um and after using the system for the entire six days um i never had any tooth sensitivity or pain at all finally finally a whitening system i can get behind uh and if you're a little skeptical and thinking this sounds too good to be true high smile offers a 30-day money-back guarantee if you don't see at least two shades of whiter teeth after using their kit simply send it back not only that, but for our Chatty Broads listeners, High Smile is offering 20% off site-wide for a limited time only. Simply visit HighSmileTeeth.com and shop their range of products and enter code CHATTY20 at checkout for 20% off. That's HighSmileTeeth, H-I-SmileTeeth.com. Enter code CHATTY20 at checkout. Are there spiritual practices that you are involved in i'm you mentioned the word spirituality earlier um to help with that yeah so um i've got lots of tools in my toolbox now (laughs) and um i'm so grateful for them all i mean having a really profound um meditative practice it's just shifted my life in such incredible ways um you know, working on being really present throughout the day. I do emotional freedom technique tapping on a regular basis. Um, you know, and I have a really amazing relationship with spirit, with the universe, with Gaia, with our planet. I mean, I just live a very intentional, thoughtful life. I try to create a lot of space. So that way I can carry that in when we're really busy we forget to check into that mm-hmm. um and yeah I don't I don't necessarily know how to put it in words but 
my relationship with my higher power used to feel very separate. And now it feels very connected. Like we're not at all disconnected. And that's been a really incredible um, feeling. And it's really just kind of settled in in the last seven or eight months where I feel more connected to source than ever before. And um, yeah, so I do everything with my kids from sound baths to (laughs) we still do affirmations and all of the things. Um, And yeah, so that's what works for me. What I really, I'm like curious to hear if I'm picking up what you're putting down, but what I really gained from what you're talking about is like, um, addiction is one way to put it of like everyone has their addictions but just kind of based on what you were saying I was thinking about maybe how everyone has ways of numbing discomfort with so like if if you're I always get on my I mean I do it too I know I do but I always get on my boyfriend because he's like I'm having thoughts I can't go to sleep I'm gonna go watch tv I'm like stop like don't go watch tv like you don't have to like don't go distract yourself but we all do it of course you know I don't want to think I don't want to be in my head so I'm gonna sit on Instagram or whatever but um that numbing that we're seeking that so we don't have to feel the discomfort and that the distraction and so just based on what you're saying, I feel like maybe you have a deeper connection to spirit, like you're saying, because you're resisting distractions that distract from the pain and discomfort of being a human, but also disconnect us from deeper parts of ourselves that may need to be healed or need to be listened to. Yeah. 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 Addiction, checking out, it's all the same thing. It's its a matter of us not having the tools to go and inward and to go, okay, so what is this? Like to get really curious, like, hmm, like this is presenting itself. I'm noticing that it's having a negative impact on my life. I'm noticing when I'm on social media for a really long time, I get off and I feel more anxious or I feel depressed. I notice when I'm drinking that I feel depressed. I feel angry. I'm noticing that I used to just have a glass of wine and now it's four or five. I'm noticing these things and it is, it's a form of checking out. And everybody always asks me like, are you afraid to relapse? And my husband and I say the same thing. And people are always like, really? Um, And the answer is no, because the shift for me really happened a number of years ago because I had plenty of excuses to relapse, guys. Like I have been through fucking hell, okay, in my sobriety. I've had plenty of reasons where the average person would go, you're good, sister. Like mm-hmm. you need to have that glass of wine. Like <laughs> you have that glass of wine, you know? Um, it's when I, in my practice, checking out of reality was no longer appetizing, where I became so connected to my inner self that it felt so much better to be in my reality, where I don't want to feel out of control anymore, where I don't need, if I need a break, it's like, oh, I need a moment to journal. I need a moment to reflect. I need a moment to watch an hour of junk TV. I need a moment to 
take a hot bath. I need a moment to breathe, you know? And, um, so for me, when checking in started to feel so much better, even when it was hard and uncomfortable than checking out, that's when all of a sudden all of that obsession over drinking, because I had it, it was real and early recovery. I was like, you mean to tell me that I'm never going to have a glass of champagne at my wine or wine at my wedding? Like, you mean to tell me that like, that's not (laughs) not going to happen for me? And now it's like, I can't even imagine. I want to be so present with every single person at my wedding. I want to be so present with my husband. I want to go to bed with him, just relishing in our love and in our connection and, and, you know, the magic that is that night. I want to experience it all. Um, and for me, birth and life and death. And I, as a birth doula, I have experienced some really traumatizing births and holding space and going, this is the moment. This is where life comes earth side. And I'm watching this, you know, experience and I'm watching this unfold for a mother who has a history of sexual trauma and I'm watching all these things and it's really intense. And it's like, I would rather, I wouldn't want to be anywhere else, but fully immersed in the present moment because it is so rich. When we learn to stop thinking about the past or the present and we get really focused or the past or the future, and we get really focused on the present. Oh, the gift. It's like, Oh, there's life. Oh, there's blessings. Oh, I'm breathing right now. Oh, my brain waves are working. Oh, I get to hug my child and be here for her. Oh, I get to have, it's like, it's magic. We don't realize that what we're experiencing right now on this planet is fucking magical. It's magical. And we're so often, I think the reason why people are struggling so much with COVID is because we're always go, 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 go. I've got to be here. I've got to do this. I got to be blah, 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 blah. It's the fucking busy awards. Everyone's in the busy awards. Oh, I'm so busy. I'm so busy. What are you doing? I'm so busy. You know, I don't have time. I don't have time to get lunch. I'm so fucking busy. And it's like all of a sudden we're being called to slow down and everything is bubbling up to the surface. Everything that we've been suppressing is coming up. And so of course my DMs are overfilled with people who are like, holy shit, what do I do? Of course, mental illness is starting to rise. Of course, addiction rates are starting to rise. Of course, domestic violence is starting to rise. But the thing is, these things were always there. We just didn't see it. We didn't care to see it. In March alone, 3,600 people died of overdoses. In March alone, that's happening in this country every single month. That's a pandemic in itself. That's all is happening and we're not doing anything about it. So yeah, I mean, I just feel every single breath, even in the moments where I'm in the midst of a panic attack and my whole world feels like it's collapsing and I'm really tired and my kids have stressed me out and I'm tapped out and touched out and all of it. I'm like, thank you. I'd much rather be here than to be back in my suffering checking out of my existence I'd much rather be here I think we truly do such a disservice to 
everyone in our culture too when we're so focused on happiness as the end goal or this sort of like yeah happiness is the end goal because that's never realistic and it's unachievable mm -hmm. and it also doesn't embrace the full spectrum that is existence and that is being and i think like i mean i've talked about this a little bit on the podcast before but even the way that we are expected to parent our children we're like if they're crying we have to soothe them and we have to get to the root of the we have to make it stop like as soon as we want them to be happy and it's like that's not that's not real life and then and you have children and that's my problem with the attachment parenting method that's why i follow janet lansbury and the rye approach you do okay oh i love janet <laughs> you too <laughs> Get that bitch on my podcast. I've tried. I have fucking tried. I have tried. I have begged. She just ignores me at this point. It's brutal. Um, but yeah, when we coddle our... So here's the thing. And we do this so fucking often. It drives me nuts. Where we have a It's so problem. hard not to. <laughs> so hard not to. But we have a problem, right? We have our parents who experience total... You know, children should be seen and not heard. Shut the fuck up. Your feelings don't matter. Pull yourself up by the bootstraps. Stuff, 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 stuff. Mm -hmm. And then we, of course, go, well, the opposite of that is oversoup. My child should never cry, blah, blah, blah. And I did this with my first, right? I had such a bad childhood that I thought that I needed to be this parent who was completely selfless who breastfed on demand, non-fucking-stop. I mean, when that child was one and sucking on my tit 80 times a day, I was so miserable. I was so depressed. I felt horrible, but I could not let her cry for a single fucking second because I felt like the worst parent ever if she cried at all. And I was mm. the over-soother. And then all of a sudden, I came across Janet's work, and I was like, mind blown. <laughs> mind blown. So for anybody who is on the path of wanting to become, you know, a parent or you're already a parent and you're dealing with different difficulties. Listen, my second child, such a handful, all of Janet's tricks, they, they just ain't working, <laughs> but it's okay. Because here's the thing, like when she's mad, I let her be mad and I give her names for those feelings, you know, and I, and I keep them, I keep her safe, but I no longer, like, I no longer feel the emotional, like anxiety, like I got to fix this right now. It's like, wow, I didn't give you the right cup and you're really mad. <laughs> I hear you that you're really, really mad right now. And if she wants to carry on, she can be mad at every five minutes or so I'll check in on her and are you ready to calm down? Do you want to take a breath? No. Okay. Looks like you still really want to be mad, you know? And so it, it, it's kind of like, it's that balance, right? Between the two of like letting them have their feelings, not, not taking it personally, like as if she's mad because I'm a bad mom, which mm -hmm. that's where I would use to go. And, um, and just being really present with our kids and yeah. I'm noticing huge, I mean, I think it's because I've been doing way more screen time than normal because I'm homeschooling my oldest. And mm. so when I'm homeschooling her, she's got to be on the iPad because mm -hmm. she's so loud, then she's not focusing. And I really am noticing, I have nothing against screen time. We're all doing what we got to do to survive right now. Yeah. But I, I am starting to notice that 
her behavior is starting to get worse. I've, Um, I've felt the same thing with my little one. It's like when my husband and I are working and I'm putting her in front of the TV or like a device more often. And it's been weird because speaking of talking about like suppressing any sort of like negative emotion, I'm like how uh, gray Becca's partner is. I'm like, if I'm feeling anxious, my tendency is like zone out, put on a podcast, put on TV. That's just going to like blur out my emotions. And I think my little one, you know, the anxieties of what's going on and the confusion of what's going on, the amount of then screen time, it's just I'm seeing her get like the agitation and also like the disconnect. Um, And then it becomes, you know, of course they're kids, but like you see, it's like it's been a mirror to myself where I'm like, oh, girlfriend, that's what happens to you. You get you get real grumpy when you're watching too much TV (laughs) or you're on your phone too much. And you're just not in like in in touch with what's going on and what you're talking about um, uh, earlier with all the different like versions of what addiction may look like. It's like, okay, like having to on a regular basis go outside right now, sit in the front yard, which I'm so grateful that we have and like have my hands in between like blades of grass. Mm. And it's just the appreciation. Um, You know, obviously I don't want to be disrespectful to anyone who's been hurting through anything that's gone on with COVID, of course, but like there has been something unbelievably beautiful about being forced to come face to face with those things that so often I know personally I would run away from because of my mental health. Yeah. Mm, You know, Mm. I I just want to ask, like, I know there's going to be so many people listening who are going to be like, well, where the fuck do I start? Like, do I start with trying to dig up my childhood trauma? Do I start with trying to stop drinking like yeah. or trying to wa- go on a walk for 20 minutes a day? Like, what the fuck am I? Where do I begin? Yeah. So maybe you could speak to that of just like starting like point zero. What what where do you go from there? Yeah, I think it um, it's case by case. So I needed a major whack over the head like 15 times in order to like get it together. And my husband, for my husband, it was like a DUI. And then for my other girlfriend, it was a bad breakup and all of us have different paths. I just want people to know that there are resources out there for you. So I don't care if you, if you need to go to treatment, go to treatment. If you need to go to 12 step treatment, go to 12 step treatment. If you need to go to holistic treatment, go to holistic treatment. If you need to just see a therapist and try AA for a little bit, just see a therapist and try AA for a bit. If it's listening to my podcast and reading my book and doing my online course, maybe it's that. If it's doing it with another life coach, maybe it's that. There are so... You have to find the person that you really vibe with. Um, In the meantime, just don't die. Like I know that's so morbid, but it's the truth. Keep yourself safe. Don't combine um, alcohol and benzos. Don't combine benzos and pain pills. Don't combine alcohol, benzos, and pain pills. You will die. I'm seeing people dropping like flies right now because of fentanyl in laced heroin. I'm seeing, I'm hearing the horror stories of what is happening out there right now on our streets. And it breaks my heart just don't die. If you need to get on Suboxone and stay on Suboxone for four years before you're ready to deal with your 
uh, trauma. I don't fucking care. Then you get on the highest dose of Suboxone to carry you through until you can witness and experience the miracle. I don't care what it is. There is hope for you and you absolutely deserve a big and beautiful life. And recovery is so possible. And it's maybe not going to look the same for you as it did for me. And that's okay. So I was just talking to someone on my podcast earlier who was like, I never went to treatment and I was a horrible heroin addict. And I just kicked cold turkey in my parents' living room and started going to NA meetings and it's worked for me. And now I'm two and a half years sober. Great. I had another person who went to the jungle and did ayahuasca for four months and like did deep, you know, traumatic healing and came back like a totally new person. I was like, great. You know, it's, there is no one approach. Just don't die. There are people here who want to help you. And whether you relate to me or someone else that you've heard speaking about this, it doesn't matter to me. I just really want you to know that you're so worthy of a beautiful life. Well, your, I mean, take it or leave it broads, but I think after hearing Alexis, you're going to want to listen to the podcast. And I feel like your podcast is a fantastic place to start. You have incredible guests on. Um, it's Recovering From Reality. You also have a book, Recovering From Reality. Um, we'll make sure to put all that info in the episode notes. Anything else that? Yeah. Um, I launched my life reset course, which I'm really proud of. Um, and it's kind of like a deeper dive into our subconscious belief systems, which I think is Mm. the most profound work that we can do. Mm. And I dropped the price from $500. It was like, I had like a firm thing that it was $500 for the month. And what I did was I broke it into 12 payments of $39 and made it a year long course. So that way it's more accessible to people. Um, and is this specific to people who struggle with substance abuse or no? Okay. Nope. It's for anybody who is like, what the fuck? Why am I in the same patterns? Why am I on the hamster wheel of my life? And how do I get off? Because the thing is that subconscious programming, and I'll make this really quick is really the root of how we heal. You have to get down to those subconscious belief systems. Those develop when we're children. We don't even realize that we've developed them until all of a sudden we keep attracting the same person into our life. And we're afraid to ask for a raise. And something about that thing just makes me nervous all the time. And I don't know what it is. And you'll be surprised when you actually go back in and do the work. And it's kind of like the missing piece. Everyone's talking about law of attraction and affirmations. Like if you're saying I'm deserving of a loving partner every single day and trying to attract that person to your life, but your core belief is that you're not worthy of a loving relationship, you're never going to get that, you know? Mm -hmm. And so you actually have to go in and do the work. So it's all of basically my, all of this past decades worth of my work into a course and the, you know, what I found to be the most profound transformational tools and techniques that I've used to, um, to really clear all of my childhood trauma and crap. So, (laughs) well, I'm awesome. I'm probably going to be purchasing that. So thank you for sharing. (laughs) Well, I hope you'll join us. And um, yeah, I I think that it's really... Um, my intention with recovering from reality was always to develop a community of conscious individuals who are on the path. I don't care where you're at in the path. 
the fact that you even realize that you need to get on the path means you're a conscious Mm -hmm. individual, right? Mm -hmm. And so we're building a community of people who are doing this because like I said, the thing that kept me sober and that helped me heal from trauma was community. I don't care if it's an online community. I hope to grow recovering from reality into something that is so big that there's recovering from reality groups all over the world. But (laughs) um, right now we're in such a good place and it's just an honor to be able to hold this space for people to come and do this work. Well, thank you so much. This is so encouraging. And like, you know, it's just to wrap it like, I just want to thank you because I think going into this, especially because personally, like substance abuse isn't something that has been like in my family or something that I've dealt with personally, but all the words and all the messages that you're talking about are just like hitting home in all sorts of different ways. So I know that this is going to be so like beneficial and powerful for all of our listeners. So thank you so much. We so appreciate you coming on. Thanks for having me. Of course, of course. Well, broads, per usual, we will have it all linked. And chat soon. Chat soon. On holiday, there's nothing like doing nothing. As an Expedia member, you can save up to 30% when you add a hotel to your flight so you can go out there with great ambition to do absolutely nothing for less. Expedia. Made to travel.